Welcome back to Daily Take, Episode 2, The Discovery of Autism. Um, just wanted to, before I get into the nitty gritties of the discovery of autism, wanted to let you know that I have an Instagram page now, Daily Take Podcasts on Instagram. Um, that You can go follow that and then you can send in your suggestions there if you want to listen to a particular topic. Drop a follow. I'll do a lot of updates on there um, over time as I release more content. And thank you to all the people that um, listened to episode one. Um, I really appreciate that. And then to all the new people that are coming now seeing this episode, just to give a brief synopsis of what this podcast is all about is I want to take these topics, varying um, topics ranging all over the place, just and give you the full story or just build on your knowledge of things that you probably know a little bit about already or have heard in or read in books or whatever and give you just a, a uh, an expansion of of facts and understanding and today this particular topic autism is actually one that's really near and dear to my heart a lot of you that know me know that I have a brother with autism that I talk about a lot he is actually the brother closest to me in age we're only 16 months apart so my entire life, I'm the oldest child, my, I, my entire life, um, since 16 months on, um, I have been surrounded by the world of autism. And it's something that I've grown to know, learn a lot about. And it's something that's still a complete mystery to me at the same time. So I was really excited when I uh, came upon this idea to do this, that I would be able to learn a little more. And I actually did learn quite a bit about the topic despite being around it uh, all of my life. Um, so just to hop right in here, uh, autism, um, as many of you know, is a, a form of disability. It's a, it's considered a special need, um, among many children. And a lot of us know, or have seen or met someone with autism. It's a, it's actually a really common, um, disorder. I didn't understand how common it was until I looked at, uh, the Mayo Clinic's uh, stats, which I'm going to get into later, but this is something so common that I thought this would be helpful for listeners to come to understand a little better. I've gotten so many questions throughout my life too, like, um, what's it like to have a brother with autism? Um, are, is autism similar to these other things or how, how can you tell that someone has autism? So that's what I want to accomplish in this episode. I just want to give you the, how it was discovered, the stats, and then what, how it expresses itself. And then what it's like just to have someone in my own uh, n- nuclear family that has it and how that affects my daily life. So let's hop right in. Okay, so to start at the very beginning of, of autism, I guess, you have to go all the way back to around 1942, 1943, depending on what sources you're looking at here. And the the main guy behind this uh, this. Um, discovery. His name is Dr. Dr. Leo Kanner. Um, he, um, to give a little background on him as well, he was born in the Austro- Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1906. So he was born in, in essentially modern-day Austria, um, moved to Berlin to get a medical degree from the University of Berlin in 1921. So that's where he begins his, I guess, medical profession. He then moves to the United States in 1924 and is there uh, until his retirement in the United States. And he finds himself um, on the fac- in the faculty of John Hopkins Medical School. And this is where he has, begins to build 
his uh, his knowledge and his discovery of autism. So where it begins is now we're to 1942, 1943. He begins this observation of 11 children with similar behavior. And this is when he builds this uh, theory called early infantile autism. So we obviously I'm going to be saying the word autism a lot in this podcast. So I thought it'd be helpful to go back to it's actually its root meaning. And it's actually really interesting. So autism has the Greek word autos, which means self. And then the English word ism. And so put, get put together is autism. So the, uh, the, this is from um, dictionary.com. Early 20th century, originally the reference to a condition in which fantasy dominates over reality, regarded as a symptom of schizophrenia and other disorders. So um, you might be wondering why it brings up schizophrenia. We're gonna, I'm going to cover that as well. Now going back to Dr. Kanner here. So Dr. Kanner has these 11 children, and he has this this theory that these children are have this this um, I guess according to the word that he uses they have this condition where fantasy dominates reality and so he takes these 11 kids he watches them and this is a quote from the study he says quote the so the behavior um, is governed by an anxiously obsessive desire for maintenance of sameness that nobody but the child himself may disrupt on rare occasions close quote and so all of these kids have the similar condition. He studies them for a long time and he determines they all have a similar mental condition called autism. And it's really interesting because in back in the 1940s, obviously the medical field was not as expanse or as knowledgeable as ours today. So we can't get angry at them for not knowing these the things that we know today. But where he kind of places the blame is on the parents of these children. And that, that essentially they're developing schizophrenic type conditions, hence why in the meaning of the word it brings up schizophrenia. So why it's the parents' fault, um, according to Encyclopedia Brainiatica, um, that's a pretty crazy name for a website, it says that Kanner also coined the phrase, quote, refrigerator mother, close quote, to describe the supposed emotional fragility of parents who he thought caused or at least contributed to their uh, the child's autistic behavior. Um, this is actually really interesting as someone who has a mother who has a child with autism. I know that's not true, but to, uh, for whatever reason, Dr. Kanner found that these parents, um, their behavior towards their child likely, um, made their condition more extreme, which kind of makes uh, sense. I guess if you think about it from a psychological standpoint, cause he's a psychiatrist, that's what he, that's what he is, um, you know, a professor in, he is thinking, okay, this child has this condition. He goes home, um, which only is negatively reciprocated back to them by their parents. They're, they're giving him a negative response, which pushes them farther into this condition. And then all these kids start acting the same. So it must be the parents' fault. So we know today, obviously, that it's not the parents' fault. Um, and now we have, but Thankfully, to Dr. Kanner, despite some mistakes that he made, he opens up this gigantic new field of study, studying the field of autism. So that's where we start. Now we're here today, and I'm going to now go through all the various things that we now know about autism and just break it down with the numbers. So 
one thing, just as a disclaimer, as we go into the statistics, and, and maybe some of you have found when, when talking with other parents that have children with autism, statistics will never, ever, ever be able to completely and accurately represent the autistic community. And this is why, because we know so little, and you'll see as I'm talking about this, there will be a lot of blanks and a lot of holes. Um, it's because we, just, we still just do not know very much. 1940 is only 80 years ago. And for science, that is just not enough time to really understand the complexity of something, just like how we don't know everything about cancer and we don't know everything about um, a plethora of diseases. The same goes for here. So these statistics will only really apply maybe to the large majority or to the moderate majority or maybe even just a small percentage of people. But I feel like these facts I'm going to share with you are, are important and accurate enough that it can give you at least somewhat of a good representation of what makes up this this um, group of people that have been diagnosed with quote-unquote autism. So here are the stats of the, I guess, the breakdown of autism. So first we'll start with um, how many cases, how common is this? So if you look, if you go to Google, which I, which I totally suggest you do, this is where I'm getting all of my information, I'm just breaking down the larger articles so you don't have to read them as much. But if you go to just autism, just search autism, this page will come up on the main page of Google and it's from Mayo Clinic. And Mayo Clinic has this little breakdown in, on the page of what um, autism is, it has some symptoms, and then it talks about um, how, how common is it in the United States. So back, so on the page here, it has that it is a common condition in the United States and it has more than 200,000 US cases per year, so new cases per year. Now, if you think about that, for one year, that maybe doesn't sound like a lot, 200,000. But if you think about this, these children live longer than that one year, you know, hopefully. And so that compounds very quickly every year, 200,000, 200,000, 200,000. And actually, as a, as a strange fact, Utah as a state has a huge, huge percentage more cases per capita per year of autistic children being born. And that um, I'm not, we, there's obviously a million different theories about why that is, Ra radiation to incest to hundreds of different things. It's, I don't know, I don't really feel like it's important to go into that, but for whatever reason, there are 200,000 cases a year of autism. And this is, this is the really crazy thing. If you look into the, the, the breakdown of who is being diagnosed with autism, it's primarily boys. Boys more often than girls are have autism in, in large ratios. On uh, spectrumnews.org, um, they have an article, Autism Sex Ratio Explained. Um, this was uh, um, written in 2018, so very recently. So these are all uh, current numbers, um, I guess, statistically speaking. So this says the most comprehensive analysis of autism sex ratio published in 2017 drew on data from 54 prevalent studies worldwide. So this larger studies or larger studies around the world are all brought together into one comprehensive analysis. That analysis estimated about 4.2 boys with autism for every girl. So for every one girl diagnosed, there are 4.2 boys also being diagnosed. So that is that is a huge, huge difference, right? I mean, in some studies, if you read through this article, it gets as large as eight to one, and um, which is just a crazy thing. And it tries to explain simply 
in this article why that could be. It talks about, you know, obviously boys and girls are built differently and that goes through the brain as well. So there's brain differences and there's um, chromosome differences and all of these other things. But really, at the end of the day, we do not know why more boys than girls are, are being diagnosed with autism. One thing that's actually quite interesting about this, it also says that autism is harder to diagnose in women. It's harder to find in girls. And so that could be that there maybe are girls out there that could be on the spectrum of autism and it's just not as obvious if it was found in a boy. And I don't really know what that means um, per se, but that's just something good to know that more boys than girls are being diagnosed with autism. Now that we have the, the doctor that's discovered it, we have the stats behind it, let's really dive deep into what is autism? What are what are the, the symptoms um, of autism? What will it look like if I had a child with autism? What would it look like if I met someone? And and funny enough, um, autism, because it is so common, there are such large numbers of children and adults that have autism. It's very likely if you think that you haven't met someone that in reality you have, which is which is the crazy thing about it. And that's what I really want. To, I really want to make very clear is the autism. Um, condition, the, the the being diagnosed with autism is actually just a subcategory of a larger umbrella condition called autism spectrum disorder. So when you're talking about autism, just just that one thing, that's one of um, there's up to three to five different types of of categories underneath this umbrella, autism spectrum disorder. So many of you maybe have heard the autism spectrum, that's where this word comes from, is really like those big um, color, the the waves of light thing that you saw in science class where it goes red to purple, that's exactly how autism is as well. It is so mysterious and kind of abstract that so many different types get lumped into this one condition, autism spectrum disorder. So there are, like I said, three to five different types of autism. Um, there is classic autism, which is what we are the most familiar with, right? That's the one that we've kind of been discussing this whole podcast. Then there's less known ones, um, which are like persuasive development disorder, um, Asperger syndrome, which is another really um, big one. There's childhood disin disintegrative order and Rett syndrome, which are which are more rare. So the ones that you're probably going to be the most familiar with and more likely to run into are classic autism and Asperger syndrome. So let's let's go into the spectrum thing. This is this is actually really interesting. I found a picture. I'll put it. I'll uh, I'll put a link to it so you can kind of you can kind of get a visual for this. But the spectrum, like I said, is so big and it's so vast to go into every single little tidbit of it would would be impossible. And why I say that is. It's just like the color thing where it begins to blend with the color next to it. So if you feel like there's a child in the red, more likely they're going to be in the orange or in the yellow or somewhere in between. And throughout their life, they will work through and develop new and different things and that will make the, their autistic condition more complex. And I saw that in my brother for sure. And I want to get into him more as well as um, to kind of describe the spectrum. But this picture I'm looking at here is the color wave thing that you learn about in ninth grade science class. And it has levels one, two, and three. And I thought this was nice and simple and this would be able that you could kind of wrap your mind around this. But level one 
would be dubbed high-functioning autism. And this is a condition where it requires support, difficulty initiating social interactions, inflexibility of behavior, difficulty switching activities, problems with organization. So this is the person that you meet in the grocery store that maybe has Asperger's, that their social interactions are very, uh, very direct, very simple, and you're in and you're out and you have your groceries bagged and you're done. Like that's your interaction, that's it. And these, these, this condition, just like level two and three has, it's as um, those that difficulty switching between activities and like Dr. Kanner said, has that roteness that they want to obtain all the time. Something cognitively and mentally is motivating them to have inflexibility of behavior as this scale says. So now then you move to level two, which is classic autism or just autism, requiring substantial support, marked deficits with social interactions, inflexibility behavior, difficulty to stress, coping with change, repetitive behaviors. And this is exactly, exactly a perfect definition of where my brother is. He is definitely level two autistic and he, and he exhibits all of these behaviors. And I really want to go into that um, because yeah, I just have a lot of funny stories I want to share with you. So, but level three is severe autism requiring very substantial support severe deficits with social interaction and communication, inflexibility behavior, extreme difficulty or distress coping with change, repetitive behaviors interfere with functioning. And so this is really important to know about autism. Autism by itself causes these specific behaviors and characteristics. And as well, I believe, and studies have shown, then are tacked on to other cognitive and physical disabilities. For example, I had a dear friend that lived kitty corner to me for many, many years, and she had a brother with level three autism where he was not able to walk or eat on his own, but he was a 23-year-old man. He was a full-grown 23-year-old man that had to lay on the floor. He could not, he had to be fed and he had to be, he had to be observed and taken care of 24 hours in the day and carried everywhere. And that is not completely because of autism, but that was the condition that he was born with. And the autism is just lopped onto other conditions. So a question I get very frequently is, is Down syndrome and autism the same? And this is not a dumb question. I promise. There's so many different um, disabilities that are out there in the world that I could totally see why these two things would be lumped together. And they are, they are different. Um, Down syndrome, which could be a podcast in and of itself, it's, it's a really unique condition, is a mutation within the chromosomes of one's body. And what it does is when you're born, um, because of this chromosome mutation, you have a very similar build and appearance and behavior to other children, which is probably why it gets lumped with autism is because, it, again, it's more of a behavioral thing. But with Down, with Down syndrome, you have a physical appearance as well that makes them all look very similar, which is, which is another really complex thing that we could go very, very deep into. But they're mutually exclusive. Down syndrome and autism. You can have both. There are children that can be diagnosed with both, and there can be children that can be diagnosed with either. They're not, they're not related in any way. So going back to my brother, having level two autism puts you right in the middle of the spectrum. And again, throughout his life, he's gone more to level one, more to level three, and he fluctuates back and forth because we don't know what's causing it. There is no treatment. There's therapies. There's obviously basic medicines that can help with 
um, depressions, anxieties, because with this, this, this quote, difficulty or distress, you, there, there's this anxiety that he has that builds within him. So he has to take medication to suppress that. So for example, this is an example of this repetitive behaviors that Dr. Canner noticed when I was growing up, my brother didn't talk at all, not at all. And he would just make noises. Um, and a various noise, kind of like a baby, would mean something, but it would take us months, maybe years, to understand what it meant. Sometimes it was similar to a word that he'd heard, and sometimes it was just a noise. And and we'd call it, like, chirping. So we'd hear in the house, people would come and visit, and there'd be chirps in the background from Nathan, various hoops and hollers and, and outcries. And we had to let people know, oh, oh, sorry, that's Nathan. He has autism. But for us, it was normal noises, just like if you were in a forest and you heard birds, it's, it's that normal for us. And so as he got older, the chirping and the, the outcries became more words. And what really helped with that was watching movies, which is really surprising, but watching movies really helped him begin to learn vocabulary. That was something that he could be obsessed with and have this inflexibility towards and nothing would be wrong with that. And so what he would do, which was really, really interesting to watch, he, would, he loved Thomas, Thomas the Tank Engine. So Thomas and Friends, um, a super big production. He, would, he collected all the movies. We still are collecting movies to this day. For the last 20 years of his life, he's been obsessed with this. But we now have every movie of, ever of Thomas. And I, I, I would be very confident to say that he has not watched any single one of those movies all the way through. He only likes each individual movie for maybe between one and five scenes. And what I mean by a scene is it could be literally as small as five seconds to like a minute. And that's it. That's all he becomes fixated on. And what he would do is he'd take his iPad and his little black CD player and he would record that 15 seconds to a minute long clip. And then he would sit on his bed. And I kid you not, this, this is all completely true. He would sit on his bed for hours hours and sometimes days and rewatch that same clip over and over and over again until he had memorized not only what they were saying, because that's easy enough, but the pitch, the tone, the emotion, how they said it, how fast they said it, literally everything down to the minute details. He has the entire Disneyland Railroad, the railroad you can ride at Disneyland that takes you out the whole park. He has that entire um, speech they give at the beginning, like, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs. He has that whole thing memorized. All the parks it travels through, all the the things you will see. And he says it in the voice of that fake conductor that comes over the intercom. So he would he watches this clip, and he watches it over and over and over again. So you can imagine, this can get kind of annoying, but this is just patience being built. Uh, I guess a blessing of having someone with autism. You learn patience very quickly. But he would watch the scene over and over again. So let's just say... From the scene, it says the conductor was cross, which is, you know, cross in English term. But yeah, because it's it's all it's very British. It's a very British show. But so the the conductor was cross. So he would say that throughout the house the other day. The conductor was cross. The conductor was cross. And as kids, we want to participate with him. We want to be a part of his life. And that was the one thing that he was fixated on. And we can hop on that. So he'd say, yeah, Nathan, conductor is cross. And he would get super mad. No, 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 no. The conductor is cross. And we would have to practice with him. We could not say that phrase unless we did it exactly right. And it would take us 10 to 15 times before we could say it with the right pitch and tone. The conductor was cross. And now 
for the past 15 years, we've been learning catchphrases. We probably have a dozen to two dozen to three dozen different phrases that we know that we say to him, and it has to be in the exact pitch, the exact tone, and we have them all perfectly memorized. It's, it's a miracle that we're able to do all these things. But that is an example of this repetitive behavior that comes with having autism. But at the same time, Nathan, if you put him, my brother's Nathan, if you put him in a classroom full of kids, he acts very, very differently from the other kids in his class. It's, it's really, really interesting to see. And so now throughout his life, he, he transitions between this inflexibility of behavior, things that he copes and has, and he can't change repetitive behaviors. And then things day to day will be switched in and out. One day he was just fascinated with Teletubbies and with um, like a reader rabbit play school game on his computer. Boom. Overnight. It was for kids. He is now a medium guy. So anything from his previous life, except for Thomas, cause we can't give that up. Anything from his previous life. Boom. It's gone. We can't even say it. We can't mention it. It is in the past. It is for little kids. He is now a medium guy, but he can't be an adult. He has to be a medium guy, even though he is easily the largest sibling in my family, but that's besides the point because that is the re- the repetition that has to be held. So this particular condition can be expressed in many, many different ways. And there's actually a list of different things that can become part of the, um, the various like conditions, I guess. And um, you can find these lists online. It's not like a super big secret or anything. But I wanted to read a couple of them to you because I think if you thought about it, you probably have seen this in kids somewhere. So there's um, a really common one is really, really poor eye contact. Nathan hates having consistent eye contact. It like really bugs him. And so he'll say, no eyes, don't look at eyes. And that's just one of his little catchphrases, don't look at eyes. And we can't look at him in the eyes. There's There's delayed speech. There's, uh, they can't maintain a conversation, um, um, abnormal rhythm or tone when they speak, they, there's like rocking that goes along with that as well. Um, they can't express emotions very well. And this was really hard with Nathan is that, um, he would want something really, really bad. And we had no idea what it was because he had no way of like, of explaining to us the details required for us to understand. So one thing with the movies, going back to the movies thing that was really important was because he could watch with that, you know, with that just crazy, crazy ability to like fixate on something for hours, days, weeks, years, he was able to watch enough movies and observe enough characters in these movies to develop what emotion um, creates what response. So, one thing that he did was he watched Night at Museum over and over and over again. And he observed how the main character, um, I believe it's Steve Carell. Steve Carell, uh, it is definitely not Steve Carell. Okay, I'm doing a podcast about about knowing things, and I don't know the main character of Night at Museum Night. Uh, at the museum. Let's see, it is... Ben Stiller. Oh my gosh. Ben Stiller has a really big issue with the monkey, right? The monkey is like harassing him all the time. So he watched that scene over and over again, which is a really weird scene where the, punk, the monkey pees on him. But he watched that scene over and over again. And when he goes, and when Ben Stiller goes back to the main, I think, I believe it's the main bodyguards or maybe goes to Robin Williams. I can't remember. But he says that monkey is bugging me and bugging me and I'm sick of it. So one day Nathan came home from school and he, and he said that line. 
um, so-and-so is bugging me and bugging me and I'm sick of it. And we're like, whoa, we recognized the movie because we'd watched it so many times with him, but that was different. He had now, instead of saying the monkey's name or saying the monkey, he now inserted a child's name from his class. And so he was using these movie taglines to now convey other things besides besides things that he was just uh, you know fixated on. He was now using it to describe emotions, which was the craziest thing. So we looked into it and, and, and it was real. He actually was being harassed by a little kid in his class. Obviously the kid was autistic as well. Like it's, it's not like he was picking on him because he had disabilities, but it was, it was, it was a reality. He actually was being picked on by this kid. And so we were able to fix it. And he has done that time and time again with other movies. He takes these taglines and he will, he'll express that to us. We know what movie it's from, or we'll rewatch the movie to watch the scene and we can work backwards from there. It's the, it's the most incredible thing. So despite having this disability, he using that fixation, he's been able to solve this problem. So some other things that, um, that you can find, I'll just list a couple more cause this is a really long list. Um, but you have hand flapping. He did that for so many years. He would flap his hands really, really hard when he got, there's like a sensory overload aspect of autism because their brains just wired a different way. Like, and they're so, uh, observational things overwhelm them incredibly easily, like bright lights and movies and sounds. And he, but they can also watch a ceiling fan for an hour. Like it, it's just crazy. Like I, it's, it's a complete mystery how their brains are wired. There's, they don't, re- and this is true as well. They don't really engage in like make believe. They don't really like play like normal kids do. They don't really like, I don't know. Like sometimes I'd see my brother laughing at random things, but like he didn't ever like imitate anything else. He didn't ever like hop in and like be the, the daddy in the house. Like he just, he couldn't really comprehend that. And so, um, I guess I could read like one or two more. Um, there is, uh, oh, food preferences. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Nathan literally will like eat. I think he ate watermelon one time and the, the texture made him just throw up. And that's like, it's, it's crazy. And they also, a lot of autistic kids as well are born with, um, gastric issues, um, bowel issues. It, that's just another, like I have a really close friend I go to school with that he has siblings with incredible, incredible bowel issues as well. It's just, I guess it's something that just gets tacked on, but it's not really autism, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, so Nathan growing up would only eat pizza, top ramen and milk. That was it for many years. <laughs> that was it. A little Caesar's pizza, top ramen and milk. So coming back to the main topic here, I could talk for hours about my brother and I probably will again before this podcast is over. But yeah, so these are the, this is the patterns. These are the symptoms of children that have autism. So this condition is still being researched heavily, heavily today. And there are plenty of groups that have to advocate for this condition because it's so mysterious and so unknown to us still that we just, there is no cure that like that. I mean, there can be causes, but there is no cure that we know of yet. To close this out, we've been talking a really long time about the various conditions and symptoms and stats and discoveries of this. I really wanted to just take a second and I want to just explain just really briefly, uh, maybe not briefly, but in a moderate amount of time, I want to just explain what it's like to live with someone that has autism because I got that question a lot. And, and again, just like the statistics, just like the symptoms, just like the spectrum itself, there are varying, varying experiences that you can have with someone with disabilities. And my brother is no different. And just any other sibling or uncle or friend that has autism, you, you get varying experiences with it. But overall, 
I would say for myself personally, having someone with autism in my family has been one of the biggest blessings that I can think of. Probably one of the top three most important things that I've had in my life that has made me who I am today. And it's because my brother taught me, has taught me so many things about priorities and about patience that I, I don't know where I would have learned anywhere else at that quickly or that early of an age. It's just, I don't know how I would have known it. He, as, as a kid, would just chew on my stuff because that's another thing that they like to touch things sensory and chew and so he would chew on my headphone wires because they're soft and he would uh, rip my clothes because I had a little hole in it and it was something he would obsess with and and it's, and we we shared the same room up until I left for college essentially or my, on my mission so really like he had like all the time he'd be breaking my stuff so I just but I also d- didn't care like it just was what was mine was his and what his was mine and we were brothers and it was just what he did like it and so I learned this really these incredibly valuable lessons from him and I really want to challenge these you guys that are listening to this to go and make friends with a family or with someone that has Asperger's or autism or severe autism because I am a firm believer that you too can gain incredible experiences. Obviously, there's still those, you know, those things that they struggle with where they have outbursts, they throw things, they're self-harm, they're harm to others. And and those things are definitely negatives. And but being their friend will give you so many more blessings than negatives in your life. And you can also be a support to those people around you that that take care of them 24-7, because that is a huge undertaking, a gigantic undertaking. My parents are some of the greatest people alive for keeping that kid out of danger, like with arm wires falling on him or running into the street or, or lighting things on fire. He's almost burned our house down so many times. My parents have stuck through all of that and they plan to take care of him for the rest of his life and the rest of their lives. And being their friend, being the friend, being the friend of someone who has autism is a huge blessing on the lives and the families of those people that raise those kids. So go out there, meet somebody, get to know them. Now you know the background. Now you get to know them on a personal level, which I could never never teach you over a podcast. So just in closing, I want to tell you one of the greatest stories about Nathan that will forever I will forever laugh about, and it's really short, but I still think it's hilarious. So Nathan and I growing up, he had this, this thing that he would do where we would wrestle and he called it kicking. So we would wrestle and stuff. And then after wrestling and, and just being boys, he would, he would, he would like, we would stand up and then he would try to spank me. I don't know why. I just, I mean, who knows? But he, but then it became this thing where like he would ask my mom in public, can we spanking the, the, the teacher? And my mom would be, my mom began to realize like, oh my gosh, he actually has a reality of spanking someone that's not Sterling or or his dad in public. And she's like, no, 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 no spanking the teacher, Nathan. But it was just always imminent. I knew one day he was going to spank somebody. And so another weird thing that he has in his mind is anyone with a mustache, it doesn't matter who you are, is uncle. Don't know where that came from. We think it's from Clyde with the Chance of Meatballs because the dad has a mustache. We don't know where the uncle thing came from. But anyway, so he's, he's at school. He's now probably 19 years old. And he finds someone in a supermarket while they're out training the kids how to use money and he finds someone with a mustache and he's like uncle and he goes up and he spanks this guy so hard in the in the supermarket and this guy just turns around and he is just piping mad none of us were there for this but the teacher 
he was embarrassed. He didn't know what to do. His aide had to rush to him and like make sure the guy didn't beat him up. And then he had explained to a guy that he had autism. And the guy was just like so confused and didn't seem to care that much. And it was just turned into this huge fiasco. But yeah, easily one of the all time greatest stories of my brother. And oh my gosh, he is just a light in my life. And he is also a big pain too, but mainly a light. But there you go, ladies and gents, that is autism. And if you have any other questions or if you want to learn more or get more perspective on it, please reach out to me, Sterling Kerr on Instagram, Sterling Kerr on Facebook, uh, Daily Daily Take Podcast on Instagram. Please reach out to me. I would, I would love to answer any questions. And there are also things you can volunteer for to give you a great excuse to go and interact with kids with autism if you haven't had a chance. And that I could give you the numbers of hundreds of different things. I don't care where you live. There's probably somewhere nearby that you can go. And help is always needed. And remember, those kids need you as much as you need them. And they are really a blessing. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you all have a great day. Stay safe out there with COVID. And we can get through this together. And hopefully podcasts like mine and others can just keep your sanity. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day. (music) 